Hello, and welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast. My name is Mike Tarselli, and I'm the scientific director around these parts. Joining me today is a dual double trouble guest. This is Catherine Matsumoto and Lena Nielsen of Recursion Pharmaceuticals. How are you both? Doing good. Great, Mike. Excellent. First quiz and first challenge. Can you both describe what you do at Recursion in 10 words or fewer? We find new ways to understand cellular biology using massive experiments. Coming in at a clean 10. That was beautiful. (laughs) It's like you prepared for this or something. Tell me about what that means. You're understanding biology using the power of data, AI, and machine learning. What, What is that? Our platform that we run is a microscopy assay where we literally run many millions of images of human cells through every week and use deep learning to extract insights from those images. And that means that our biologists and chemists are only working with the very best starting materials, the most likely potential drugs from these massive data sets where we're testing hundreds of thousands of potential drugs against dozens of diseases to start to find smart starting points. And that feels like a huge challenge for the poor human brain that is only used to like tribes of 100 people and you know living in the same city for most of their lives. How do you coach people who join your organization or who partner with you to get around this huge mass of data and this huge opportunity? Well, we try to put that responsibility onto the big data engineers and the data scientists who are used to working with that. And as product managers, Lena and I both do a lot of research and working with the scientists to make sure that the tools that they interface with are giving them questions and answers and interfaces that make sense in their workflow. So we have these teams working together a lot doing the big data and the hard, deep science. But there are interfaces built in so that everything looks the way that you'd expect it to look, kind of researching in a database. But it gives you the insight into all of the data that we've generated in-house really quickly and easily. Gotcha. And how do you um, bring this through? How do you tell the story of science through data? You said you have interaction points with each scientist the way they're natively used to, but how do you tell that story and sort of show it away from what a normal bench scientist would think of as, oh, I mixed some things and I purified a drug and I tested it in animals. This isn't you. I mean, one part is creating succinct vocabulary, both for our teams and external. Like, what does it mean to really rethink this whole process? So one framework you could have is to say, it's hypothesis-free to start. Forget the scientific hypothesis, the scientific theory. (laughs) We're just going to massively test everything to start out. Wow, that's radical. (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Or another framework that we use is to talk about industrializing drug discovery. The idea that you know, agriculture, for example, or pretty much any manufacturing process has just seen massive increases in productivity and ultimately, if we're going to be honest, right, human benefit by increasing scale and really allowing humans to focus on other parts than maybe we did 200 years ago. And this is really all about taking that mindset to scientific discovery rather than an artisanal mindset, at least in the early stages. Just to build on that, it's really, you know, the scientists typically get it pretty quickly because they're used to working with data regularly where they know, you know, if I could just, you know, take this all into my brain and, and munch through it, but it's too disconnected from other things that they've seen or it's too labor intensive to generate and analyze that much data. So if we can just kind of 
communicate to them that what we're doing is letting the computers do that part, it usually connects really well with them. They're like, great. It's basically like having a giant team of analysts that can analyze more information than I can even really think about and then giving me back my answers quickly. That's really cool. And, and I want to do a, a weird meta-analysis. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Let's find out. But usually people think about laboratory automation and screening, and they think about removing themselves one step from the bench. So now a robot or a liquid handler or a cell counter is doing what I used to do manually. You guys are one step removed from that. You are shepherding the automation along. You're automating automation at scale. What's that like to be that removed? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. No, no. tell me about it. How do you keep all those processes square in your mind? Because you're teaching computers to monitor computers. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? And it's the control processes you have actually have to be really tight, right? Your metrics and your analysis, what you're doing. And as the company grows, we're increasingly trying to close the loop, right? So that the next experiments is planned by computers. We run, for example, the new set of compounds, put the potential drugs in a new iteration, and that that becomes as automated as possible. So mistakes can really multiply. So I think that's one part that might not be appreciated if you're, you're sitting on the outside. And there's also a lot of logistics, right, that are actually quite difficult, both in the hardware and the software and the biological nuance that has to come together. Catherine, same for you? Yeah, I was just going to basically say something similar that we have monitoring kind of all along the way at every step and are constantly trying to inject both human processes and machine learning to detect and correct any of those issues. But it's lots of people and lots of systems focused on the one thing that they really want to go well, and that all adding up into a very complex automated system that is reliable and speedy. So it really doesn't come for free. You have to put a lot of attention into each of these systems and the data that it's generating and how you're going to make sure that it's all adding up to the right story. And um, you know, we definitely keep an eye on that a lot as we grow and add new components to our assay and diversity to our compound library and things like that, that we couldn't, you know, really foresee how it would change how we were operating. Okay. So on that basis, I got to know, you have compound diversity accounted for, you have assay biology and predictive assay biology, you have error checking, you have, you know, optimization of algorithms, you have, you know, ROCs that are being calculated all the time, you have assay biology. So this has probably been asked many times on better podcasts, but what's the role of humans in your process if you've got all this streamlined? Yeah, it's a good um, example of kind of like, you know, the jobs that are not going to be automated away are the ones that require human interaction and weighing kind of difficult decisions that require, you know, deep knowledge that you've tuned your intuition of what looks good and what doesn't. So we have a lot of people both kind of like in the roles that are what you'd expect interacting directly with those systems, software engineers, automation engineers, but there are a lot of hard decisions that we don't see automating those away, including kind of like the analysts, the data scientists, and of course, the drug discoverers, the chemists and the biologists, that we see our automated process and our machine learning as augmenting and supporting what they do. And it really is not going to replace what they do because there is so much complex knowledge you know, that's necessary for, for doing their job. 
Yeah, and I think another point, Mike, is just around how incredibly difficult it actually is to put these data science systems into production, really out in the wild. And that is at Recursion and at every other company I've ever heard of, that's actually a massive effort. It's really easy to fall into naive solutions that aren't really what you think it is. So one in our realm might be you could build an algorithm, for example, that just counts cells. You know, the, the systems are going to want to do these things that don't really get at the heart of what you're looking for. And so there's a lot of smart people thinking before and, and doing and testing before you can build the new part of a system that now scales to 10 million images in a week, right? And to be clear, I mean, although you are a lot about imaging, biology, data science, et cetera, you do still hire chemists, biologists, engineers, right? <laughs> That's right. And so the drug discovery pipeline is a lot more than finding a, a potential interesting drug on this scaling platform. So in one part, you could say that we're building systems so that those bench scientists can focus on the most promising science, right? We are de-risking the system. But a second point is that the automation that we have built for now is just the start. And we are beginning to automate some of the things that are being done in these later steps that you might think of as non-automatable, but they're not. Spoiler. <laughs> but you still do need expert input into the system, as Lena was talking about, to make sure that you don't just create the world's fastest cell counter or something like that, right? <laughs> and I came into recursion, not from a science background, but from a linguistics background where there's a lot of machine learning that goes on. But the problems that they're looking at in language translation are solved by humans largely. Like we know how to translate a language. It's just slow. So these drug discovery problems are not solved so you can't take the same sort of approach that you do to problems that are, you know, that you just need to speed up, like telling if something, you know, is a cat or a dog, an image is a cat or a dog, or translating from Spanish to English, which a person can do. We can't just turn over the same thing to, you know, even a highly trained, really experienced medicinal chemist and say, okay, which one of these drugs is going to work? We just need to train our algorithm. So we mm -hmm. need to have this interaction back and forth to iteratively learn from each other and just speed up the process and find places where we're like, we get surprised by what the algorithms can do. That's really cool stuff. And, and I got to know, because you brought up the linguistics angle, which I am curious about. And Lena, I know you're a well-decorated biochemical engineer. So between the two of you, I guess, why choose this career? Why go into data science wrangling and automation for drug discovery, as opposed to your previous callings of, of linguistics and biomedical engineering? Yeah, I'll say I didn't see this coming. You know, I thought I would be working for a, a fun ML startup that, you know, I had no idea when I started this you know, how different it was going to be from other machine learning and artificial intelligence endeavors. So I guess I really found new purpose in being able to work for a company like Recursion that's bringing people with all sorts of different backgrounds and saying, you all have something to add to this, one of the hardest problems that we're trying to solve right now. It's made better by having people with different experience look at it with new angles and new ideas. So it's just mm. been fun, just like something I never could have anticipated. And when we start to identify drugs that are looking effective, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone is letting me, a linguist, do this. Um, so it's, just, it's just thrilling and really a great learning experience. I'd say for me, the lead word is uncertainty. I really like doing work that has never been done before. Mm -hmm. And this idea of, you know, 
can this even be done? That there are people out there who are really smart who, who doubt that. I think it's just like a really cool place to be in a place where the impact goes beyond the company. You're part of changing how a whole industry, a whole field of science thinks. And pushing on those boundaries is just a mega cool opportunity. And then I'll say a second part, because I think there are some people who listen to this podcast are kind of figuring out their career. And I think for me, I used to work at the University of California, Berkeley, which is a fantastic academic institution. But for me, and just the way I take, I think there's something really neat about the way problems are restrained when you're in industry, the way you you can't just choose, like, I'll ignore this one part for the next paper or Mm -hmm. more more research funding needed. Total freedom. (laughs) Yeah. And that depends on your personality, right? But I think that... It's really neat the way the problems are bounded when you need to implement them at a company. Okay. Uh, You said uncertainty and trying things you've never done. And Catherine, you like the challenge and the unexpected. So tell me about starting up a pharmaceutical company in the middle of the desert and in the mountains and being not in one of the big clusters of the Cambridges or San Frans or Londons of the world. What's that like to sort of go it on your own or is a community forming around recursion? There is a really growing biotech community in Salt Lake City. There's a lot of different things going on. So we are actually, you know, find a lot of connection with those folks. But it is definitely, it's something we have to to look right in the eye if we're recruiting and, and just the network effects of being in one of those cities. But I think right now for everyone who works at Recursion, being in a place that values your work-life balance and being close to the outdoors and having people have like affordable living opportunities is something that shows through in the culture and everybody really appreciates. So we know people are coming here kind of sharing both our passion and dedication to drug discovery and our interest in, you know, just being a whole person, which uh, makes the culture really fun. I've never been in one of those, you know, hub areas, so I don't have anything directly to compare to, but Lena has been in them. As of I, I work outside of Boston, and let me tell you, we're still looking at those funds to buy that first house. But Lena, go, please. <laughs> yeah, I think as second what Catherine says, there's definitely pros and cons. Some things are challenges, like hiring. On the other hand, people stay for longer, right? <laughs> so that's good, just thinking pragmatics. I think it's definitely true that not being in a major hub gives you much more freedom to define what it means to be a professional in this field. And that sure. gives recursion a lot of freedom to set its culture, to set it way it's work. And particularly where you're working on, on such hard, big problems, that's actually really powerful. That's something when I moved here I guess almost close to three years ago now. I didn't expect coming from San Francisco how powerful that really is and how set in my thinking I was because there was an echo chamber that in many ways is powerful, but it's real. And breaking out from that was for me really powerful as an individual and I think is powerful for recursion. That's really great. And that's inspiring to hear. May I ask, what's the most exciting thing since we're talking about how great it is to define your company? What's the greatest thing both of you have done or your best personal accomplishment since joining the firm? What's the coolest thing that's happened at Recursion? So really recently, we implemented a new deep learning model that can't talk about the details of, but both Catherine and I worked on it and it is very cool. And I mean, it kind of harks back to the rest of our conversation is kind of like, at first, you have to do the actual scientific research, right? To develop the approach. It's, it's actually not that different in a way than academia, like the rigor. 
And then there's a phase where you know you evaluate what you did by specific metrics, both scientific and technical, and just kind of real life pressure testing on the weird ways things can go wrong. And then Super finally, cool. a third phase of just the engineering implementation. You know, we're gonna do this on close to a million tiny experiments every week five to 10 million images that we're running. Like this has to work in an engineering scale sense, in a biological reagent sense. All of those things have to come together. And um, that's just really cool. And I think maybe as I reflect on that answer, maybe the meta way that that's cool is that the coolest thing we worked on is often like the most recent thing. And (laughs) that's a pretty neat place to be. Bleeding edge. That's cool. Catherine, same thing for you? Yeah, I would have probably said about the same thing as Lena, but I'll add something different, which is that we took our platform at the beginning in March and April to screen some repurposing drugs against COVID-19. And that was really cool to be a part of. Our platform was not built to do live virus drug discovery, but with just a couple of tweaks to the way that we ran our assay, we were able to run our this deep learning model that Lena was was mentioning that was trained on different types of disease models. So it was trained on siRNA and as different soluble factors and some CRISPR gene knockouts. And we were able to find really interesting, relevant findings around repurposing drugs for in COVID-19. And that was just amazing to be able to see a global pandemic and pivot our work within a matter of a couple of weeks to add to the knowledge on that virus. And um, we were really, you know, we've been building for this level of like repurposing of our platform to do new different types of diseases and different types Mm -hmm. of compounds. And this just was a moment where we looked at ourselves and we said, oh my gosh, it's working. We did it. Like it is actually showing relevant data for something that we didn't directly create this assay to test. So that was really cool. And kind of just like Lena said, just one of the more recent things, being able to build off everything that we've done in the past and seeing it all come to light. And just out of curiosity for my own ignorance, of course, is it tuned entirely to small molecule drug repurposing and factors and predictive properties, et cetera? Or does it ever come back with surprising things like this small protogene could do this or this small biologic could do this? Is there a limitation to your current system at all? You know, we wouldn't expect it to work for all of biology. (laughs) There's great diversity there. And definitely you will find limitations of parts of sort of biological space that aren't covered. But we've been surprised how broad that has been to date. That's kind of one of the this still awesome. unresolved mysteries scientifically almost, or at least I find it surprising how robust that is. And, and maybe as one example of an area that we can make comparisons is between disease models, right? That's very different from a small molecule being compared with another set of small molecules, right? Does this immuno-oncology disease look like this other disease? Does this genetic disease look like this other family of genetic diseases as far as kind of function goes in the human cell? And there, we're definitely finding all kinds of interesting unexpected correlations. And in fact, ultimately, that is the vision of the company, is this idea of a map of biology where you can drive broad insights, not necessarily, quote unquote, just within a data set of hundreds of thousands of potential drugs, but it asks much broader questions of 
you know, if something worked in disease X, is it likely to work in disease Y? Before I even test anything, which out of these million compounds are the most likely to work in my assay? So today we're largely brute forcing that first step, but you can imagine a not so distant future where we're saying, hey, this is the 10% most likely to work and that's all we're going to test. Right. You already have a one in 10 shot before you even get into the wet lab. That's awesome. Right. Okay, so you guys have already shared a ton of wisdom, but I got to know, especially as both you know, female leaders in science, and that's really great, and in data science, what tips do you have for younger generations coming into the automation data science screening spaces? What should people who are in undergrad or early grad school be doing to be you? <laughs> uh, so many uh, weird turns along the way if you want to be me. But one thing that we see at Recursion and we really value at Recursion is people joining early in their career who have intentionally exposed themselves to like educating in multiple of these areas, right? So mm. if you're an automation scientist, push further into software engineering than, than maybe your degree requires, right? If you're a, you know, a, a lab scientist, figure out the modern data science techniques to analyzing your data and pursue some, some of those automated ways to do data analytics. We see... Curiosity. So- Yeah, we see so much acceleration out of these people who we kind of call bridge employees. They can bridge the gap between the traditional like methods and these newer automation or deep learning, big data methods. And those are people that they can come in and have very little actual like work experience, but be adding something completely orthogonal to the people who have 30 years of drug discovery experience. And we see them being really impactful as well. Like it, as it, you know, so you don't have to wait to kind of slog away at getting all these years under your belt in your career to have a unique impact. And that's something you really set yourself up to do just by pursuing some different electives or boot camps or something like that. That's really cool. And also different than most pharma answers would be, I would think. <laughs> young, <laughs> young and interesting and curious are way different than, you know, go do your postdoc and make sure you're a world expert. Yeah, you could also do that. That's just, you know, like Lena said earlier, depends on your personality. You know, some people want a little bit of everything and they're kind of collectors of knowledge. And, you know, they just want to be a Renaissance person kind of across the field. And I think Lena and I get a lot of, you know, value add out of just being those people who are like, well, I'm not an expert in that, but I'm going to go check this out and do a little bit of research here and just sample around. And then we'll be able to connect the dots in a different way than somebody who's got deep experience. Yeah, I mean, trying to be a polymath definitely resonates with me too. (laughs) Another thing I think for me early in my career, I really limited the opportunities I gave myself, meaning that I would see an opportunity and ask myself the question, you know, do I know how to do this? And actually, the right question is, can I learn how to do this? Even partially. And if you come in with that mindset, you're really setting yourself up for growth, I think. And that was a really hard transition for me, actually. And it was like the year that happened was really big. It was actually after mm-hmm. my PhD, where I really built on not just kind of being technically good at the bench or in front of the computer, but really changed my mindset. And, and maybe I'll even share, like I did a really silly tactical thing and I'm just going to get out there and share. I'd love to know. 
started doing this exercise where whenever I went to a talk or I was in a group meeting or I was meeting someone, I asked myself three questions. And, and I wouldn't necessarily act on them, but I would force myself to write them down or put them in my brain. The first one was, if I was called on to ask this person a question right now, what would I ask? Because I had a hard time like even daring to speak up, frankly, in presentation, etc. But just get that ready. What was the thing I would ask this person in this setting if I were to speak up? Before I got to the stage later on, a few months later, where I was asking all those questions. So first one, just what would I ask this person? Two... If I was going to try to help this person, what would I do? And that really changed my mindset of kind of before being sort of limiting. I'm new. I can't help with anything. But it turns out that people need all sorts of help. And it's not all about the edge of knowledge in their field, right? And I began to connecting with people on like, hey, I can proofread your paper or... Sure. Small things. (laughs) Yeah. Of course. Go from there. Right. All kinds of stuff, right? And then this third one was, if I was going to ask this person for help, what would I ask them for? And that just opened me up to a different mindset of like, I don't have to do all of this on my own. Like there are people out there who are so willing to help. And after I did that exercise, I think for about a year and increasingly actually acted on it, that began to really open up opportunities. In fact, that's how I got my first job after my postdoc was asking one of these questions in a big seminar at a conference and wow. connecting with that speaker. Oh, that's really cool. And it's good to see you know, learning and rubrics pay off and actually lead you to where you want to go. Okay, we're rounding out about the time for this podcast. So tell me, do either of you have last thoughts you want to share? Something impactful and fun? I hope people reach out and want to learn more about recursion. And also, if there are other people working on cool stuff kind of in this space or adjacent one, I would love to hear about it. I think it's really um, invigorating to hear from scientists in adjacent spaces. So I hope to hear a couple of people reach out. Yeah. And I will just say, in addition to that, definitely reach out to us about you know what we're working on or career stuff if you have those questions. But stay tuned and watch Recursion. We are releasing a new data set and that'll be our third publicly available data set. Anyone can go online to rxrx.com and get those data sets and play with them. Um, you know, we, we just love to hear from people working with our data and seeing how they can push the boundaries of what we know. It's rxrx.ai. Sorry. Sorry, Lena. rxrx.ai. We'll update the notes. No worries. <laughs> and then all that data is the foundation, um, a little bit of a peek into our map of human cellular biology. So that's a, a really fun way to, to see what we're working on and what we're generating. That's really cool. And I'm glad that Recursion is committed to that as a company. And one last question. Where should people find you? LinkedIn, Twitter, some other way? LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, you can find me either one there. Um, Same here. Great. In that case, we thank you very much for a deep and exciting conversation about the future of drug discovery. Dr. Lena Nelson, Dr. Catherine Matsumoto, thank you. Thanks, Mike. 